those people may stick with him. There's probably 35% of the electorate, come what may, as Donald Trump likes to say, uh, will support him regardless of what he does and says and how many lies he tells. For the rest of the electorate, Donald Trump's strong suit is that he was presiding over a booming American economy. Coronavirus has clearly stopped that growth in its tracks, not Donald Trump's fault at all. But that's the way politics works. If your economy is stagnating, whoever's in power at the time tends to get the blame. the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We are releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud or our Facebook page. Every week we will be in discussion with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics or economics. We hope that they will provide regular enjoyment in these uncertain times. I'm Leo Nascau and this week I'm joined by Sir Peter Westmacott, a former British ambassador to the United States, France and Turkey. Peter is currently an Associate Fellow at Chatham House's U.S. and the Americas program and was the Ambassador to the U.S. throughout Obama's second term as President. He was closely involved in coordinating the international response to the Syrian civil war and witnessed the evolution of the Republican Party into what he labels the Party of Trump. During the financial crisis and the Arab Spring, Peter was the Ambassador to France, whilst he was the Ambassador to Turkey when President Erdogan was first elected to national office in 2002, then as Prime Minister. Peter draws on over 40 years of diplomacy, during which he also served in Iran and the European Commission in Brussels. But I started off by asking him about the United States and the extent to which Donald Trump has changed the Republican Party and whether these changes are for good. I think the nomination of Donald Trump took the party by surprise. At the beginning of that year, 2016, nobody in the Republican Party really thought that uh, Donald Trump was going to be their candidate. And when it came to the election itself, he was as surprised as anyone when he won it. But after that, the Republican Party, particularly that in the Senate, where there's, a, of course, a Republican majority, fell into line pretty quickly. And they have been unquestioning, really, in their support of a lot of the pretty controversial, if not strange, things that the president has done uh, and has gone along with uh, most of his policies. Of course, they voted en bloc to stop the impeachment process, except for Mitt Romney. But all the others, despite the things that uh, Trump had done, tucked in behind him. So he has managed to keep the party very strongly united behind him. Has he changed the party for good? I think I would say that the party's probably been moving a bit to the right for a while. Uh, this is not necessarily right because Trump is more than anything else a populist, not particularly left, not particularly right. And I think in a way his election was a fluke because he, after all, he only won by 76,000 votes in just three states and lost the popular vote by three million. And the Democrats will obviously be hoping that he's a one-term president. And I think until all that's clearer, we won't know whether he's changed the Republican Party for good. I think all I would say is that at this stage, he's made it into the party of Trump rather than the party of anything else, because they are so unquestioning in their support of whatever he does, however egregious it may be. The lasting impact, let's wait and see. If he wins a second term, I think we'll have to think again. If he's a one-term president, then I think the Republican Party might uh, no longer be the party of Trump, although he will not go quietly. And then we'll have to see what sort of party it is. But it, I think it has surprised a lot of people that the Republican Party has become so absolutely firmly supportive of everything Donald Trump has done, given that he really was not their natural candidate when the whole process began. Do you think people's impressions of the party will change? How they perceive them maybe as a party that's quite responsible in government and with their finances? 
I'm particularly thinking of the middle class centrists in the political spectrum. Has the way they see the Republican Party changed quite a lot? A lot of people voted for Donald Trump's president who were not really natural Republican Party supporters. He was populist. He promised a lot of things to a lot of the less well-off. He appealed to those who were feeling alienated by political elites who lived in flyover countries and who had different grievances of all sorts, didn't like globalization, didn't like free trade. Not dissimilar from some of the appeal of the Leave Europe campaign in the United Kingdom. I think that there are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump who would not normally have been supporters of a Republican Party. And they believe, because he told them, that he was going to make them all better off. In practice, he hasn't. He's killed off a lot of Obamacare, so health care is gone for millions of Americans. And most of the tax breaks for big business have gone into dividend payments and buybacks. They have not gone into making ordinary working class, middle class people in America better off. Their incomes are still at the same level as they were at the time of the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008, many cases even lower than that. So although they're supportive and he gives them a lot of what they want, he appeals to the evangelicals, he's got a right wing Supreme Court, he's come out for being anti-abortion and so on, then in practice, a lot of the people who supported him, I think, may become disappointed in terms of the economic impact. So those people may stick with him. There's probably 35% of the electorate, come what may, as Donald Trump likes to say, will support him regardless of what he does and says and however many lies he tells. For the rest of the electorate, I think we just don't know. The one thing I would say about 2020 campaign is this, that Donald Trump's strong suit, apart from telling the less well-off he'd made them better off, which the evidence suggests he had not, is that he was presiding over a booming American economy. And coronavirus has clearly stopped that growth in its tracks, not Donald Trump's fault at all. But that's the way politics works. If your economy is stagnating, or there's no growth, or people are feeling worse off, whoever's in power at the time tends to get the blame. So by November, if we're still in a period of economic retrenchment, I think there's a real chance that a lot of those people who voted for Trump last time will not vote for him again this time, however unfair that may be. We have to wait and see what happens in the macroeconomic environment before we know whether this is uh, something of lasting significance for the voting base and indeed for the Republican Party. It's looking like Biden will be the Democratic nominee to challenge him. Do you think he's a good person, the right person for the Democrats to go with to make Trump a one-term president? I think what's important is that the Democratic Party decided much more quickly than it usually does who their candidate will be. At this time, last time round, Hillary Clinton was still struggling against Bernie Sanders and probably a few others at this stage. Money was wasted, money was spent, I should say, on primaries, and it was it, it took a long time for her to finally nail down the nomination. Biden has got there much more quickly. Bloomberg fell into line, Bernie Sanders has fallen into line, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Amy Klobuchar, and all the other serious heavyweights have decided, okay, we're not going to get there. So Biden is looking very strong in terms of the party. Because of his age, I think it may be more important who he picks as a running mate than it often is. Usually the running mate makes very little difference to how American voters vote in the presidentials. But Joe Biden is uh, 77 and he might be a one-term president, or people will at least say, well, look at his age and look at his health, and we better make sure that somebody is a running mate who can take over competently in the event that they have to do so. So that 
remains to be seen which lady, I think it will be a lady, he's committed to having a female running mate. In other respects, Biden is probably of all the Democratic candidates, the one who is best placed to appeal to the Trump base, uh, the kind of Joe Sixpack, as you, if you like. He's a good old boy. He feels people's, not just pain in, in the Clinton sense. He, he's very interested in people. He talks to them. He wants to know what makes them tick. He, he's, he's a very caring human being. And I think everybody likes Joe Biden. The doubts about him are nothing to do with that or whether he could be presidential. After all, he's run before and he's been a very effective vice president. I think it's more about age and about the fact he's been a bit gaff prone sometimes in the past. But I would say, I know him quite well, that he's a, a thoroughly decent human being. He certainly helped make America respected again during the Obama years internationally. Uh, not a shred of corruption about him, despite what some of the Republicans, Donald Trump, have tried to say. So I think in many respects, the right sort of person to be a candidate and who personally I can see quite easily uh, occupying the Oval Office and doing a good job. Moving forward, sort of in the decades ahead, I'm thinking about the next generation of Democrats. Who do you see today that is a good person to lead the Democrats forward from a younger generation? I would be amazed if Biden does not choose somebody quite a lot younger to be his running mate. It might be Amy Klobuchar, who is a, you know, a very bright senator from the Midwest. It could be Kamala Harris, though I think probably unlikely. Elizabeth Warren, probably a little bit too left-wing for some of the votes that he needs to win back from Donald Trump. And they are, you know, they're not in his generation, they're a bit younger. But then you've got the 40-somethings, Mayor Pete, for example, mm -hmm. uh, who did a very good run. Probably if he hadn't been gay, he would have done even better, considering that that was a real problem for him with the black vote. I would imagine that he would have a good future one way or another. Several of the ladies who ran, some of them dropped out earlier on, like Kirsten Gillibrand, you know, very talented uh, younger generation political leaders. Uh, then there are some Kennedys around. There's, a, there's an outstanding young congressman, Joe Kennedy, who is actually running for the United States Senate in November, who could well be maybe a little bit further down the track in the leadership stakes for the Democrats. I think there's a, there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of very sound senators on Capitol Hill. So you're right in suggesting that at the moment, candidates on both sides are getting on a bit. But I think there's plenty of talent amongst the younger generation of Democrats who they can turn to uh, once this whole process is over. I think there are some similarities with the UK and the development of the Conservatives and how they've been quite willing to commit to big spending projects, and also with the electorate and how disaffected new Conservative voters have been with the establishment and with other parties. How seriously should we take all these similarities? How, how much should we try and learn from them? I think there has been something of a polarisation of political thinking, political positioning in both countries. During a lot of the Brexit debate, there was a sense that the Labour Party under Corbyn had lurched to the left, that the Conservative Party, if you like, under Brexit had lurched to the right, and there was a great big empty middle ground, which was why we had some defections from both parties. So I think there's a bit of a gap there in the middle ground as a combination of social media, stagnating incomes, fear of globalization, interference sometimes with the public discourse, fake facts, false stories being spread by malevolent governments and organizations and people with lots of money who want the narrative to be a different one. All that's been going on here, and it goes on in the United States as well. I think the Republican Party probably started with Newt Gingrich, you know, back you know, 25 years ago, 
who began a kind of let's not do any more smoke-filled room deals. It's scorched earth and take no prisoners. And, you know, the Republican Party went a bit to the right. And some of the Democratic Party went to the left. I think I would say less so. Clinton and Obama were absolutely not, if you like, left-wing uh, headbangers uh, by any means. But quite a lot of the debate during the Bernie Sanders day during the primary has been quite left-wing. Elizabeth Warren, super articulate, super bright, but quite left-wing as well. Is politics changing for the good? I think certainly in America, a lot will depend on what happens in these elections in November. I mean, it's, it's not inconceivable, I suppose, that the Democrats could win back the Senate. It's not impossible, especially if the coronavirus thing continues to go badly. They would hold the House and get the Senate and even win the White House. Now, if that happened, then you've got a number of things that can change, and I wouldn't want to try to predict what happens after that. Here in the UK, it looks as though for the next four or five years, we're not going to be an election unless something implodes. Oddly enough, the Boris Johnson approach after he became prime minister and before coronavirus was already rather kind of left wing. Let's throw lots of public money at infrastructure. Let's make sure the Northern powerhouse works. Let's consolidate the appeal of the Conservative Party to all those people in the north of England who've never voted Conservative in their lives, but did this time because of either Brexit or they didn't like Corbyn. So they've already begun to move in a kind of fiscally somewhat irresponsible way by traditional Conservative terms. And since then, Rishi Sunak, very boldly, as the Chancellor, has thrown a whole lot more public money trying to save the economy from the worst ravages of the virus. So we're already in different territory, which sort of overturns the traditional distinctions between left and right. We don't yet know oh, what the lasting effect of all this is going to be. What we do know is that there are lasting effects of both Trump and the Brexit campaign in terms of a lot of ordinary people feeling that their incomes are stagnant, that the political elites have left them behind, that globalization has not been a very good thing and free trade for a lot of the less well-off, and that their voices have not been heard. All that exacerbated by quite a lot of social media and like pre-digested information feeding different prejudices of different groups. So we are no longer in the same old political environment where a family would sit down and look at the nine o'clock news and there are the facts and then decide for themselves what their opinions were. The distinction between comment and fact has been completely lost and indeed fact is now often distorted, if not invented, uh, for political purposes. Other significant points are the Huawei situation and a trade deal. These are both points of contention with the US. Do you think they would have been managed differently if Donald Trump hadn't been in the White House and it had been somebody else? I'd just say two things in response to that. The first is that despite the attachment we have here to the special relationship in the United Kingdom, the reality is that we have had quite a lot of issues between Brits and the Americans where we have fallen out, whether it was Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan or whether it was Obama's time when he was furious with us for being a founder member of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or whether we were or weren't still the first ally of choice and ready and willing and capable of joining America in a military conflict. You know, there have been a number of issues where it's been, you know, hard going. And you can go back to Suez if you want to in the 1950s. So it's an illusion to think that all was absolutely perfect without ever having any issues beforehand. So that's always part of life. And part of the job of a, of a British diplomat in America is to manage all that stuff, to, to advise, to see how we can manage it, where we do need to stand firm, where we need to think again, and so on. Second thing I would say is that since Donald Trump came to power, both the uh, Theresa May administration and the Donald Trump team have led over backwards to want to be on uh, very friendly terms 
this is partly because he said, I'm a great believer in Brexit, and they thought that, A, that was politically useful, and B, that, which I've never believed myself, a shiny new free trade agreement with the United States was going to be a vitally important part and quick part of compensating for the economic damage of leaving the single market to which 45% of Britain's exports currently go without any tariffs at all. So if you like, even if on the substance on things like tearing up the nuclear deal with Iran, which actually the British government did say thought was a bad idea, uh, but on Middle East policy, on climate change, on attitudes towards NATO, on a number of different issues, the British government would normally have had some reservations. They've been pretty keen not to say boo to the to the Trumpian goose, mainly for Brexit reasons. How long will that continue? We'll see. People are not talking about the free trade agreement with America nearly as much as they used to because the penny's begun to drop, that it's going to take years to negotiate, and it actually makes very little difference to the prosperity and the substance of that trading relationship, which is absolutely, you know, the most important single trading relationship Britain's got in the world, but it's not going to be effective very much either way. Those are the realities. Would it have been different with a different sort of president? Well, some of it would, but let's not, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that even with a, a president with whom we have a very close relationship, we used to squabble about Northern Ireland. If you know, think back to the days of Bill Clinton giving visas to Jerry Adams and Mark McGuinness when the British government really didn't want that to happen. Now, this is part of life. The job is to manage it because there's so much more that actually joins us together. Uh, and that, I think, will continue continues now with, on the intelligence side and the defense side and cultural side and the educational side, you know, thousands and thousands of British students in American universities and vice versa. All that continues regardless, but there's always bumps in the road and it would be wrong to think that that is significantly affected by one president or another. Do you think the Huawei bump is another of those small bumps or is there something to say that it's more significant? I think Huawei, it is a very significant issue, but it's not just because of America. Huge debate here in the UK, you know, look at the divisions within the Conservative Party about how to handle it. The problem with the Huawei issue is that what we should have done about three years ago or more is all those of us who were a little bit worried about Chinese technology taking over the world, and given that all the enterprises, all big enterprises in China are fundamentally a branch of the Chinese state, you know, we should have worked out, okay, are we happy to go down this path? Or do we need to get together and ensure that we've got the technology for 5G or even 4G in our own hands? We didn't. What happened was Apple and others subcontracted an awful lot of the work to firms like Huawei. 4G is almost unworkable without a lot of the Huawei technology. And the Nokias and Edelsons of this world you know, got rather shunted to one side. And so by the time the debate arose, there wasn't much alternative. Lots of communication systems in America, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Britain, are already heavily embedded in or with Huawei technology. So it's pretty difficult to ditch it. Is there a real risk? I'm not an expert on this. Some of the hard wiring, the technology that takes the cables to the mobile telephone towers and the software that then transmits from there to people's phones, probably relatively uncontroversial. But the basic software at the heart of the system, you know, is it available to Chinese authorities? Can it be switched on and off at a switch? If uh, we got into a very difficult situation, can the critical infrastructure of countries which are dependent on Huawei technology uh, suddenly be rendered dysfunctional if a political decision is taken in Beijing? I honestly don't know. But 
I think, according to all the intelligence people anyway, at least in Europe, if not in America, there is a way of having a kind of hybrid arrangement somewhere away and some which is not. The difference between core and edge, and there's a debate about whether that's a real distinction or not. But really, if we're honest, this is a debate which we should have had a few years earlier, because right now there isn't much realistic alternative but to incorporate at least some of the Huawei technology in our next generation telecoms. The other huge point is the leaked emails by your successor a couple of years ago. How unprecedented is an event quite like that? Because that's really quite a unique gaffe, I suppose. I wouldn't call it a gaffe. We've had diplomatic cables leaked in the past. We had WikiLeaks, which was primarily American, but some of our material was put into the public domain. The stuff has been leaked, which British ambassadors in Washington have written before. My predecessor had a long document all about President Obama leaked the Daily Telegraph, I remember. And there was some stuff earlier in Kim Derrick's time, which was leaked. Part of it is how people respond to that. It's deeply worrying when this does happen because it means that an ambassador is no longer going to feel able to say what he really thinks if he thinks it's going to turn up in the newspapers and or cause offence to the host government. Derek wrote, and what was leaked this last time around, wasn't particularly exceptionable. It wasn't really very different to what you read in the New York Times and Washington Post most days of the week about the Trump administration. But Trump reacted badly. And Derek's position became very difficult. And then Boris Johnson declined to support him when he was asked whether he did. And so he felt that he, he really had to leave. The substance wasn't, as I say, particularly controversial. The problem is really the security of our communications and the principle of it. It's not so much a gaffe with Americans. It is the security of diplomatic communication. So that's why people like me were saying when this happened to the then prime minister and others, it really, really is important you get to the bottom of how this happened. Was it a malevolent government which has broken into the classified communications of the British government? Was it a disenchanted former employee? Was it somebody who thought that Derek was the wrong man for the job and wanted to embarrass him? I don't know. But you do, we do need to know. And one of the problems is that when things do leak, whether it's in Whitehall or somewhere else in the whole world of diplomatic communications, we haven't been very good at getting to the root of it and discovering what went wrong and ensuring that it won't happen again. And I think that's the single most important part of this story. As an ambassador, when you wake up on a day, you find something's happened, there's a big disruption to the relationship between your country and your host country. What is your response? What do you do in the next couple of hours to manage that? Well, it depends entirely on what the issue is. You first of all, got to find out what the facts are. You know, how bad is it? Is there real damage? Often immediate responses uh, can be the wrong ones. Equally, you leave things too too late, and then the response is too late to have any impact. I mean, for example, if there's a big terrorist incident, I know that's not what you're talking about. When I had a few of those when I was ambassador in Turkey, one of the most important things is the ambassador's got to be there on the ground, taking control, judging what's happened, supervising the recovery and treatment of the victims and supervising the communications of all those things. At the political level, it's rather different. I happened to come back slightly early from my vacation in Turkey the night when the House of Commons voted against the UK joining the United States in making military strikes against Syria in response to the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime. And that was, in, in political and geostrategic terms, you know, quite a shock because the UK has always seen itself and indeed been seen as America's principal ally and partner when military action needs to be taken in response to somebody doing something bad in the world. And here was the House of Commons saying, we're not going to do it. You can argue that the Prime Minister didn't even need to ask House of Commons for consent, but he did. And, and the answer was no. 
So I landed that night shortly after the vote was taken. And, you know, what do I do now? In practice, it turned out to be one of the reasons why President Obama himself decided to consult Congress. And then, given that he didn't get much of a green light there, and given that there was a diplomatic outcome, which in fact was probably more effective in taking control of the chemical weapons and the helicopters used to launch them than military action would have been, they went down the diplomatic track rather than the military track. The answer to your question is uh, the response depends entirely on the nature of the drama and the nature of the crisis. Um, there, is no, there is no general rule. You mentioned the difficulty that Obama had working with Congress in D.C. How difficult did governing become for him, particularly in his second term, when he'd lost the Senate? And also I was wondering how this constrained his international relationships. I would say as far as the Senate was concerned, it had some impact in that the Republican-led Senate was determined not to do him, as they saw it, any favours at all. They behaved, in my view, pretty scandalously, for example, in refusing even to give a hearing to his nominee to replace a member of the Supreme Court who died for a whole year, and then you know, pushed through their own nominees as soon as Trump became president. I mean, that's pretty much against the rules of, of the way Congress should function. But they were determined. And Trump was somewhat obsessed, I would say, by President Obama. Even now, you know, time and time again, when this or that comes up, he wants to point the finger of blame at the Obama administration. He makes it up if need be, even if it's back allies. He will blame his predecessor for this or that issue that he's got to uh, face up to today as a president. So uh, the Republicans didn't like President Obama, and of course Trump didn't like President Obama and continues to go on about it. So it was a problem losing control of the Senate for things like Supreme Court nominees. It could have been a problem for one of the biggest foreign policy issues which we got involved in, I got involved in, which was the nuclear deal with Iran concluded in the summer of 2015. Because Israel and a lot of Israel's friends and a lot of the Arab world really didn't like this deal. Uh, we believed, and there were, there were six different governments which were the co-signatories, that diplomacy was better than war and that this was the best way of stopping the Iranian military nuclear program. Did it stop all aspects of bad Iranian behavior throughout the Middle East? No, it didn't, but it was never intended to. So we became heavily involved in trying to ensure that Congress did not kill it when the Republicans were in control. And what we needed to try to ensure was that the Democrats all supported the Obama administration. And they came under massive pressure from the Israeli prime minister who was ringing up senators day by day to say, kill this terrible deal. And the financial clout of APAC, which is the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which has a lot of influence in uh, American politics. And they really didn't like this deal at all. Reasons we understand Israel was constantly being threatened by Iran. But our view and the Obama administration's view was that this was uh, the least bad way, if you like, of stopping the Iraq nuclear program. So we got involved. I mean, I worked with the Russian, Chinese, French, German ambassadors on Capitol Hill, lobbying, if you like, on behalf of the Obama administration. But that's because we were also the co-signatories of this agreement to try to ensure that Congress did not kill the what we call the JCPOA. And, and actually, we succeeded. We managed to ensure that there were enough Democrats on board, and so the attempt to kill it off failed. So, But I think I would argue it's one of the rare occasions where other governments were instrumental in making a difference on Capitol Hill. Overall, yes, it was much more difficult, but I don't think it made much difference on the foreign policy front, except possibly around Iran and, and the other Middle Eastern issues. 
and then of course for domestic politics you know trying to get spending bills through and um and budgets through the Congress. Because in those days, Republicans were fiscally very conservative and didn't want any debt. Now, it's completely different. Obviously, the styles of government in the US and also France, where you were from, I think, 2007 to 12. What do you think Britain can learn from the way that they govern their countries? We've all got our different uh, political systems. In France, you've got a very different system of political accountability for the head of government. You've got a head of state who is also the head of government. You've got a national assembly, which doesn't have anything like the same powers as the House of Commons has. It so happens that the head of our government is happens to be the leader of the biggest party in the House of Commons. doesn't follow at all in France. And the president is elected directly by universal suffrage. So there's a very great deal of executive power that comes out of the Elysee Palace and the ministers that the president appoints and the staff he's got working with him. That allows quite a strong centralised form of government more so than we have in the UK. Of course, the other problem is that it means that if things go wrong, there's nobody else to blame. France is a kind of wonderful country in lots of different ways, but, but one is that whoever they vote as president within a year or so, they are giving them terrible approval ratings because on the whole, the French think you know, government sucks and, and everything they want to do or change isn't working very well. And despite it all, you know, despite debt levels, despite this, despite that, you know, France rattled along with decent levels of economic growth, pretty restrictive employment policies and economic constraints. But it works. But it's a different, it's a different form of government. It's much more centralised. In, in that sense, it's, it, it's rather different. We've talked about uh, the Middle East quite a lot, and France has always had quite a vested interest in that area, and North Africa as well. What was their response to the Arab Spring? I don't think France had a particularly distinct response compared to others. I mean, vested interest, it's a rather pejorative term, isn't it? You know, let's be fair, uh, all countries which have had uh, long-standing political, strategic, economic interests in the Middle East continue to take a close interest in what happens there. America had huge interests in the Middle East, partly because of oil, and America now is a net exporter, but for many, many years before the discovery of shale, it wasn't. And so it really, really cared about Aramco in Saudi Arabia and about the free flow of oil from the Middle East countries to power Western economies. And of course, America, probably more than any other country, though France and Britain also have an interest in this, you know, care deeply about the security of Israel. And so therefore, the whole Israel-Palestine issue was important for them too. France, a player, of course, and France had its own historic interests and its own very special interests in North Africa, in the French-speaking North African countries. I think France's interest on the whole has been, first of all, to preserve what they call la francophonie, which is the French-speaking countries of mainly Africa, uh, because it's sort of French-speaking and and France has a much more dominant role in that organisation than we ever did in in the Commonwealth and to continue to do business and to see that there is a degree of French leaning or at least Western leaning political stability in all those countries. So I think Arab Spring, tragically, France wasn't any more use, any more capable than the rest of us of doing anything to help. I don't think have much to do with what happened in Tunisia, which was the country which in some ways went least badly wrong. When Egypt blew up, again, France, I don't think was a player. It was, however, a lead player in Libya, where there was a revolt, part of the Arab Spring, against the dictatorship of Colonel Gaddafi. And it was President Sarkozy who took the lead, not so much to join in regime change and and Arab Spring politics, more because at the time there were some alarming stories in March of 2011, I believe it was, 
that there was going to be a humanitarian catastrophe in Benghazi if foreigners did not do something to stop the arrival of military columns of Gaddafi's troops, and he'd threatened to hunt down the inhabitants of the city like rats. And it was Sarkozy who took the lead there, even though Libya had traditionally not been a country in which France had taken a close interest. That had been much more the UK. So I think I would say that France no more or less vested than anybody else's, but they are very good often at using the instrumentation of the state to do business on behalf of oil companies and arms companies and so on, even setting nuclear power stations sometimes. But then some of the others, you know, they're very organized. Back to what I was saying about the centralization of the French system of governance. But uh, that does not mean to say, I don't think that France had any more or less of a role in responding to what was happening during the Arab Spring. Turkey was also a country that was quite closely involved uh, in the Arab Spring and the Syrian civil war. How significant do you think those two events have been in their international relationships and their international standing? Turkey, of course, not an Arab country, but next door to a number of them, and was involved in the various, the two Gulf Wars, uh, led by the United States, because it's right next to Syria, and because there were hundreds of thousands of Kurds coming across the border as refugees into Turkey. And that itself created problems, because Turkey has a large Kurdish minority of its own, which it doesn't want to give any sort of independence to. Then, of course, more recently in Syria... Turkey did become a player when the revolt began against the Assad regime, initially absolutely determined to do whatever it took to get rid of Assad because Erdogan and Assad had fallen out over a number of different issues. And so Turkey was quite helpful to some of the opposition groups, sometimes perhaps too helpful to some of those which turned out to be you know, pretty nasty Daesh ISIS types. But it was all really about trying to do its bit to get rid of the Assad regime rather than because Turkey had any other uh, territorial or other ambitions in Syria. One thing it didn't want to do was to see the Kurdish community in northern Syria get into a position like the Kurds in northern Iraq had got to, which was where they've now got their own regional government, which Turkey actually gets on with just fine now, but it was deeply nervous about to start with. And they didn't like the idea at all of the whole southern border of Turkey stretching through Iraq, through Syria, and then Iran, and into Turkey itself, becoming a greater Kurdistan that bothers and would have bothered, you know, even Ataturk going back many years in Turkey. In other respects, its main involvement was in Libya. Now, the Turks are on the side of the internationally recognized government in Tripoli and against the militias, if you like, of General Haftar, who are supported by France and by Egypt and by the Gulf states. Are they able to make much difference? Now and again, they try. In the United Nations Security Council, British government, we're all trying to support the internationally recognized government of Libya, but it's not going well. More generally, I think Arab Spring developments, apart from the way the Iraqi and the Kurdish issue spilled over their borders in the southeast, what goes on in the Arab world doesn't directly affect them. Of course, the other point is that the relationship between Turkey and Saudi Arabia has not been great, particularly since uh, Mohammed bin Salman took over as the crown prince. And there were rumors that the Saudis and the Emiratis wouldn't have minded if the failed coup against uh, President Erdogan had succeeded. And it's partly because they think that Erdogan is too soft on the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it's partly because Erdogan has good relations with Qatar, which is the kind of pariah state for the other Gulf states. It's not much because Turkey does business with Iran, but I'm sure they don't like that very much. But when the Saudis ended up having poor Mr. Khashoggi uh, murdered and chopped up in small pieces in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, the Turks were understandably apoplectic about that and were in a position, because of very fancy intelligence work, 
to leak a lot of the details of what happened, which meant that the early lies which the Saudis put out about what had happened were shown to be just that. And so as a result of that, I think I would have to add that the relationship between Turkey and at some at least of the lower Gulf states is not great and unlikely to be so as long as the relationship between the Gulf states and Gata remains bad and possibly even for as long as the whole standoff between Iran and the Sunni Arab states continues. You were the ambassadors of Turkey when Erdogan was first elected in 2003. I was wondering what the perception of him as a prime minister was then and how that's evolved over you know, the past years he's been in power. When the AKP came to power, I think that Turkey's friends and neighbours were pretty pleased because what we'd had was a series of pretty dysfunctional coalitions in Turkish politics for the previous decade or so. There'd been a major financial meltdown, economic crisis, very high inflation. In every 10 years or so, there'd been some sort of military coup in Turkey. So you know, it hadn't been having a great time. And suddenly you had a single party winning an election. And I would say that for the next kind of five years or so, Turkey rattled along, high levels of growth, a lot of important reforms, abolished the death penalty, started looking afresh in a much more enlightened way at the Kurdish question, and began to make a pretty credible stab at meeting the criteria for membership of the European Union. And I was lucky enough to be there from 2002, the very beginning to the end of 2006. And most of that time, it was, it was all good news. You know, the wind, wind was in the right direction and the economy was booming. Investments came in and political and other relationships developed rapidly. The Turks even, alas, just too late, did the right thing on Cyprus, which is the longest standing unresolved territorial dispute inside the European Union. And that was rather tragic, but at the end they did the right thing, but then the United Nations plan was put to referendum. The Turkish Cypriots approved it, the Greek Cypriots turned it down, and it also became, for a while anyway, the biggest single reason why Turkey's EU accession negotiations with the European Union got stuck because time and again there were elements of sovereignty and recognition about Cyprus and what about the divided island, what about the Turkish Cypriot and what about political status. All that kind of got stuck and every time it got stuck the EU would of course rally around the issue of member state solidarity. So the Greek Cypriots who were the accepted member state of the EU on the whole got what they wanted and the Turks and the Turkish Cypriots did not. And then after a few years, it all began to become more complicated for lots of different reasons. The military initially were opposed and there were standoffs between the elected government and the powerful Turkish military. And then that all changed. The military became rather weaker. They tried to have the governing party shut down. The Supreme Court wouldn't go along with that. And probably the biggest single thing that happened by the time we got to 2007, 8, 9, was that the alliance between the Islamist Ak Party and a kind of large brotherhood organization called the Fethullah Gulen movement. They fell out. You know, those two groups had helped bring the Ak Party and Mr. Erdogan to power, and then they, they squabbled, and it all became very messy. President Erdogan became convinced that they were all out to get him, which to some extent they were. And a lot of things began to go wrong from then. He decided he wanted to change the constitution to give the presidency more power. There became a degree of politicization of the law courts, the judiciary, police, journalists put in jail. You know, a lot of things began to go, what we would say, in the wrong direction. But your question was about the first few years. And I think the first few years, the rest of the world was pretty pleased and wished Erdogan well and did all in their power to ensure that Turkey made rapid progress. Do you think if Turkey had fully joined the EU, his later illiberal developments would have been constrained somewhat? 
Probably yes, uh, but as I was hinting at just now, there were a number of reasons why actual membership was going to be difficult. Part of it was to do with Cyprus. Part of it was because for some member states, Turkey was too big, too poor, too Muslim. We in the United Kingdom, and I personally, were strong supporters of Turkish accession and would have been happy to have Turkey joining the EU, just as we were happy to welcome Romania and Bulgaria into the European Union. And my own view, when people said, oh, but you're out of your mind, it's never going to happen, was that if Turkey actually met the criteria for membership, that would be pretty damn good on its own, because it would be a modern, reformed country based on the rule of law with full respect for human rights and a member of the customs union, which it is now, and a strong economic and political partner, member of NATO, which it is now, member of the Council of Europe, which it is now. So to all intents and purposes, if you like, a very important uh, Western ally in even stronger shape because it had met the criteria, even if it never actually became a member state of the European Union. So if it had done, yes, I think a lot of what's going on now would have become impossible. But, you know, let's get real. Look what's happening in Hungary at the moment. You know, there are things happening in other parts in Poland, other parts of the European Union, which are quite counter to the fundamental principles on which the EU is based. So who knows what kind of response there would have been. But I, I like to think that it probably wouldn't have gone that far. And I like to think that President Erdogan would not have felt it necessary to crack down in the ways that he has because his own position in Turkish democracy, I like to think, would not have been under threat from the Fethullah Gulen movement in the way that it turned out to have been in the later years. 